Thank you, choir. Dr. Randazzo, I closed my eyes for just a moment when you were playing and thought it was Kenny G. Thank you for doing that. Man and his wife were having some marital problems. They went to a counselor. And uh, while they were there, they went through the litany that you normally go through as to the problems that were involved in the marriage. Finally, the wife said, we just don't communicate. In fact, we have not talked since August. The man looked at her, said, I don't know why you're complaining. I told you then, if you had anything to say to me, say it before football season begins. (laughs) I suppose all of us are sports fans, and probably some of you would border on being qualified as fanatics, but we all like sports. That is not exclusive to us. In fact, we find that love in biblical days. Back during the days of Scripture, there were the Olympics. In fact, I looked up in the choir a moment ago. I remember when, uh, when we were on Mount Olympus, and uh, Dr. Wynn, I, I remember you racing down that ancient field along with some others of us. But, but, but there were the Olympics in Greece. There were the uh, Isthmian Games in Corinth. And so we've always loved sports, and during biblical days, their heroes were the athletes. In fact, Cicero complained, these athletes are given more honor than a conquering general. Now, because sports is so important to us, there are many metaphors in the Bible that teach us spiritual truths. Today, we're going to look at one of them. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse number 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Now you notice it begins there in verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the picture that is being painted there is that of a stadium. There are people in the stadium watching and cheering for what is going on on the floor of the stadium. So we have a giant stadium here. Something is going on. There's an athletic contest going on. And those in the crowd are watching and cheering. Now we have earthly spectators who watch us and cheer us on. For some of you, you would say, well, that's my spouse. My husband, my wife, cheers me on. That's certainly true with me. The best cheerleader any family ever had is Linda. I mean, she is really, and in in fact, she should walk around with pom-poms. She is such a, a great cheerleader. I remember when I first went in the ministry, I was asked to speak at an evangelism conference. I was a nervous wreck because there were some men preaching who were really good, and I was supposed to preach, and I was, I was scared to death about it, and, and Linda said, I said, you're going you're gonna to be the best one there. Well, that wasn't true, but boy, did I appreciate that. 
In fact, after the service is over, I will walk to the back door. She will give me a kiss and tell me that I did well, whether you think I did or not. So maybe you would say, well, those in my stands who are cheering me on, that would be my husband or or that would be my wife. Or maybe it's your parents and grandparents. There's nobody better cheerleaders than parents and grandparents. We love to go to the ball game whenever we can and see Glenn play football and see Hughes play basketball and see Pruitt play baseball and Janie just play around. We love to go. I mean, we just we just cheer them on. We're just like you. We're in the stands. We're calling out their name. We're cheering for them. So parents and grandparents, they cheer us on, don't they? I mean, they're in the stands. They're in the stadium. They're cheering for you as you live your life. Maybe it's friends. Recently, I had the opportunity to, to go to First Baptist Hilton Head and preach there. John Keller, a longtime friend of mine, was celebrating his 20th anniversary. And so they wanted to celebrate that. And I had the opportunity of going and speaking and join in that church or join with that church as they celebrated the anniversary of their pastor. Friends, they cheer us on. Church family. Church family cheers us on. I was looking at you students. And, and you are so, I, in my opinion, you are so fortunate in this church because there are those in this church who are your age. There are, we're a multi-generational church. There are those in this church who are as old as your parents. There are those in this church as old as your grandparents and probably some as old as your great-grandparents. But there's nobody who loves you more and prays for you and they cheer you on. I know sometimes whenever I watch, and I love it, whenever the young people sing and they participate in the service up here, and some of you are turning out there and saying, what are they saying? I don't know. I've never heard that song before. But it doesn't make any difference. You're still cheering them on because you love them and you pray for them. And so we have those in the stands on earth who watch us and they cheer us on. Maybe it's a husband, a wife, maybe it's a parent, a grandparent, maybe it's a friend, maybe, maybe it's someone in the church, but they're cheering us on. But here, he is speaking about those in heaven who are in the stands watching. There's a great stadium and those in heaven are in the stands watching. One commentator said probably this is a reference to a relay race, and the idea is that the, 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 the participants are running in the relay race and those who are cheering you on are those who have completed their race, their part of the race, and now they're watching you as you complete your part of the race. And they're there cheering for you. Let's go. Who would those people be? Those people in the grandstands of heaven who are cheering for you, who are watching you, who would they be? Did you notice in verse 1 it says, therefore? Now, therefore refers us back. So when we see the word therefore, it is to refer us back. So apparently it would be referring us back to Hebrews chapter 11, which is the chapter that lists all those great men and women of faith. So those in Hebrews chapter 11 are now in the grandstands watching you and cheering you on. Abel would be there. The Bible says that Abel in Hebrews chapter 11, that Abel offered a better sacrifice to God. And now he's in the grandstands of heaven watching you and cheering you on. Enoch was there. The Bible says that Enoch was a man who walked with God. And now he's in the grandstands of heaven 
watching you and cheering you on as you walk with God. Abraham is there. Abraham was was a man who followed the Lord, the Bible says, not even knowing where he was going. But the Lord instructed him to go to a land that he had never seen, to leave his family, and he went in faith. That great man of faith is now in the grandstands of heaven watching you and cheering you on. Noah would be there. Noah was a man who believed God when he said that he was going to send judgment upon the earth, a flood upon the earth. And he began to build an ark even when it had not rained. Now he's in heaven's grandstand and he's watching you and he's cheering you on. Some of you have also uh, husbands and wives and we have recognized many of those from this past year. Sons and daughters, husbands and wives and parents and grandparents and they're in, they're in the grandstands of heaven. They're watching you. They're watching you. And they're cheering you on. I don't know how that affects you, but I read this sometimes. And when you get discouraged, you get tired, and you think, I, 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 you know, I don't know. And then just to think that in heaven's grandstands, that my mother is there, that my dad is there, that my loved ones are there who have preceded me. They've gone to be with the Lord. And there they are in heaven watching and cheering me on. And I'm encouraged to think that Abraham is there and Paul is there. Peter is there. Andrew is there. Daniel is there. They are there and they're watching you and they're cheering you on. So there are the spectators that are in heaven. And, and then we see the strategy that wins. Now you, you have to have a strategy if you're going to win. I listen sometimes, I don't listen a lot, but uh, to the radio sports talk programs. And there are people who always call in, you know, and you listen a little bit. And they say, well, I'll tell you what our strategy ought to be. We ought to give the ball to Mike. Just let Mike run the ball until they stop him. Then we'll figure out something else. But everybody has a strategy to win. You have to have a strategy to win. Well, the writer of Hebrews gives us strategy. And the first part of it is, is discipline. Now, if you're going to win, you, you have to be disciplined, right? Am I here by myself? <laughs> if you're going to win, you have to, have to be disciplined. Now, my, my dad was a disciplinarian. In fact, he gave me so many spankings. I can still go to a fortune teller and have his palm read. There has to be discipline. If we're going to win, there has to be discipline. And so he talks about it here in verse number 1. He said that we what? We lay aside every encumbrance. Now, the word encumbrance literally means weight. That's all it means. Lay aside every encumbrance, which means weight. John Hamby wrote, Encumbrance is not bad or evil in itself. It is simply something which weights us down diverts our attention, saps our strength, or dampens our enthusiasm for the things of God. All right, now here's what he's saying. We're going to have to have a strategy that wins, so how do we do that? We have to be disciplined. We are disciplined as we lay aside every weight. Now, you know that's true in athletics, correct? If you're going to be successful, you have to get rid of excess weight. You ever seen a 300-pound pole vaulter? Or high jumper, or 
or hurdler or anything. No. If you're going to be successful in athletics, then you have to get rid of excess weight. When, when Hank was um, planning to go to the Citadel, that summer he lost 30 pounds. Now, he had played football in high school. Now, knowing what was going to go on down there, he said, I better get rid of this excess weight. So he lost 30 pounds. He lost another 10 pounds his first year while he was there. So he lost 40 pounds. You have to get rid of excess weight. That's also true with uh, the Christian. Ladies and gentlemen, if, we're, if you are going to be a success as a Christian, if you're going to be all that you can be, then you have to rid yourself of any excess weight or encumbrance. Wilbur Chapman wrote, The rule of my life is this. Anything that dims my vision of Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study, are you listening? Or cramps my prayer life or makes Christian work difficult, it is wrong for me and as a Christian, I must turn from it. All right, now let's think about this. What excess weight do you have, spiritually speaking, that keeps you from being all that God would want you to be? For some of you, you might say, well, you know, it's a friend. Now, you, some of you have friends. They're not bad people. But they just don't challenge you to be all that God wants you to be. They don't encourage you to be all that God wants you to be. Maybe you need new friends. Would it be a habit? Some habits that you have that you need to lay aside, that you need to get rid of? Is it an attitude? Do you have some attitudes that you need to get rid of to be all that you can be in Christ? I used to have a staff member in a former church, and I don't care what. In fact, in fact I would do it sometimes just to watch him because I knew his response. I don't care what you brought up. His first response was always, we can't do that. And then we would have to work through that. But that was his starting point. We can't do that. I knew that he had come around, but that's just where he was. What I'm asking you is this. Is there some excess weight, spiritually speaking, in your life that keeps you from being what God wants you to be? Whether it be a relationship, whether it be a habit, whether it be an attitude, whatever it is, is there something in your life that is keeping you from being all that you can be in Jesus Christ? Well, then you need to lay it aside. That's the discipline, and that's what he says. And then he continues, and the sin which so easily entangles us. The word that is used there refers to a long flowing robe. Now, I've watched quite a few football games, and one of the things I've noticed is that they don't run in long flowing robes. Why is that? Well, because they would trip on them. So what he is saying to us then is that we lay aside anything that weighs us down or trips us up. If there's something in your life that will weigh you down, keep you from being what you ought to be, or that will trip you up, he says, then you need to lay that aside. That is the discipline. And then there's the direction. He continues in verse 1, and run the race that is set before us. You see, we, as Christians, we have a goal, which is God's plan. I look at the Apostle Paul, one of my heroes in the Scripture. Paul had a plan for his life that came from God. In Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14, Paul wrote, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul had a goal for his life. He said, I've not attained it. I have not reached it. He said, but I do have a goal. And he said, I want to be everything that God wants me to be. That was the goal. That was the commitment of his life. Now, was he successful? When he came to the end of his life, he was in a Roman prison about to be executed because of his commitment to the Lord. And he was able to write to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Paul said, I have a goal for my life. I've not attained it. I've not reached it. But I'm pressing towards it. And he came to the end of his life and he said, I have finished my course. And I've kept the faith. Jesus had a goal for his life. The first recorded words of Jesus, you recall, is when he was in the temple as a 12-year-old boy. And his parents had lost him and they came back to find him. When they found him, they said, Son, where have you been? We've been scared to death. We've been looking everywhere for you. Where have you been? And Jesus said, Know you not that I must be about my Father's business. See, that was the goal of his life. He said, I'm, I'm here for the purpose of doing the Father's will. Know you not that I must be about my Father's business. That was the goal of his life. That was the commitment of his life. Was he successful? Well, from the cross as he was dying, what did he say? It is finished. I have completed the goal. I have have done what the Father sent me here to do. He completed the goal of his life. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to have a goal as believers. Otherwise, we're like the little boy who shot at nothing and hit it. We have to have a goal for our lives. We have to have a goal for our walk with Christ. What is the goal of the Christian, the general goal for the Christian? I believe it's found in Romans 8, 29. Paul wrote to become conformed to the image of his Son. I believe that is the goal of life that the Father has for you, that he might work in your life, and that's what sanctification is, the Father working in your life, the Holy Spirit working in your life, putting aside those things that you should, putting on these things that you should, so that you are becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is God, God's desire for you. That is His will. That is the goal for you. That you become increasingly like Jesus. Now, if you pursue that goal and you're committed to that goal, then you will be successful to hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Then there's determination. In verse 1, he says, and run with endurance. Vine says that that denotes to abide under, to bear up courageously under suffering. Now, there are two characteristics, I believe, required for endurance. First of all is desire. You know as well as I that an athlete who does not have the desire is never going to be successful regardless as to how much talent they have. An athlete can have all the skills, can have all the talent, but do they have the heart? Do they have that desire within them? I remember as a boy when Darrell Royal coached the Texas Longhorns, and he said, show me a good loser, and I'll show you a loser. Now, you may or may not agree with that. The point is, however, 
that if you're going to be everything that God wants you to be, then you must have that desire. As a believer, you must have the desire. I am going to be what God wants me to be regardless as to what goes on around me. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Why in heaven's name would you live your life to be mediocre in your commitment to Christ? Why would you do that? Why would you be content just to get by? I'm, you know, I'm going to get into heaven one day whenever I die. Really all I need is a fire insurance policy. Why would you be content to live your life that way? Folks, understand, it doesn't make any difference how fast you start the race if you don't finish it. We have to finish the race. So there's desire, and then there's commitment. An athlete who is successful has a desire to be a winner and is committed to that. I was at a meeting once where Bart Starr, incredible quarterback of years ago, but he was a speaker. And I remember him saying, because I wrote it down, he said, everyone has the desire to win, but do you have the will to prepare to win? You see, there has to be the commitment. I have the desire, but there has to be the commitment. So endurance for a Christian means that I continue on regardless as to what's going on around me. George Matheson wrote, it is the power to work under stress. To have a great weight at your heart and still run. To have a deep anguish in your spirit and still perform the daily task. What is the strategy that wins? If you want to be a winner in life, if you want to be a winner as a believer, what is the strategy? He says there has to be discipline. There has to be direction. And there has to be determination. Now then we see the Savior in verse number 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. See, we have the strategy, but the strength is in the Savior. You can have the strategy, but the strength is in the Savior. He is the author of our faith. He wrote it. He birthed it. It's His faith. So He is the author of the faith. Therefore, He is to be the focus of the faith. The word fixing is a Greek word, and the idea is of concentrating your gaze to look away from other things so that you can focus all your attention on one object. All right? It means that I look away from other things so I can focus my attention on one object. Now, look again at verse number 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Now that literally is translated looking to Jesus. Looking to now it's looking and I want you to understand this, it is looking to Jesus. Not looking at Jesus. Okay? You might say, well, what is the difference? What difference is it? To look? Well, let me show you this way. You are looking at me. My family looks to me. 
You see the difference? You look at me and see me. My family looks to me for provision, for protection, for those things. That's what he's saying when he says that we're looking to Jesus. Right? So then I, I am looking to Jesus, not at Satan. I'm aware of Satan. I'm aware of the temptation. I'm aware of all of those things involving Satan. I am aware of it, but I'm looking to Jesus who is the conqueror of Satan. I'm looking to Jesus, not at my circumstances. You might have circumstances that are not favorable. You're aware of them. They're a challenge for you, but we look to Jesus who overcomes the circumstances. We look to Jesus, not at the brethren. If you look at the brethren, you're going to be disappointed. If you look at Jesus, you'll never be disappointed. We, we look to Jesus, not at our weaknesses. That was the challenge of Moses when God said, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of bondage. You go to Pharaoh and tell him to release them. And Moses said, well, hey, my God, who am I that he should listen to me? In other words, Moses at that point was looking at his weakness rather than to God's strength. Same thing is true of Jeremiah. When the Lord said to Jeremiah, I want you to be my prophet, Jeremiah said, Lord, I am too young. I have no experience. He was looking at his weakness, folks. Don't focus on your weakness. Focus on his strength. That's what it means to look to Jesus. That you look to Jesus, not at the things that are around you. And he is the perfecter of our faith. And then he is the rewarder of our faith. In 1 Corinthians 9, 25, and everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. An athlete does what they do to compete for the trophy. We do what we do to compete, or not to compete, but to receive the crown of life. See, Theirs is an, a perishable wreath. Ours is imperishable. We receive the crown of glory. Let me conclude. You're being watched. And I'm not talking about the NSA. You people are watching you. Your friends are watching you. Your family's watching you. People at school are watching you. People at work are watching you. You are being watched. But not only are you being watched here, but according to what the Scripture says, you're being watched from above. There are those who are in the grandstands of glory, cloud of witnesses, who are watching us. And they're cheering for you. I hope that's an, I hope that's an encouragement to you to think when it gets tough that there are people in the grandstands of heaven who are watching me and cheering for me. They are cheering me on. Jesus, he says, enables us. He is our example. And he is our strength. That's the reason Paul said, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. He gives you the strength to do what you need to do. And he is our rewarder as we serve him. Some years ago, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir sang in our church. And it was glorious. You, many of you have heard them. It was glorious, they sang. And I was seated next to the pastor, Jim Cimbala. And as we sat there just taking in the basking in the joy of the music and so forth, and Jim kept saying, well done, well done. 
swelled up. And I thought, you know, one day it would be my desire that the Father would watch me and those in the grandstands of glory would watch and say, well done, well done. Ladies and gentlemen, we should live our lives in such a way that those who watch us and cheer for us are able to say, well done, I'm proud of you. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your love and your grace. Lord, we thank you for those who have watched us and prayed for us and encouraged us through the years. May we live in such a way, Father, that that we please you. Lord, I pray today for this invitation time that we might respond in such a way that is honoring to you. For those who have never trusted Christ, that today they might. Lord, that we would leave here having been obedient to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we will stand. The choir will sing a hymn of invitation. If you're here without Christ, my I encourage you today to commit your life to Him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of our family. Stand with me, please. As we stand, they sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.